Welcome to the Making After School Cool podcast, the link between research, practice, and theory for those interested in the activities youth are involved with during non-school hours. The Making After School Cool podcast is produced by Case for Kids, the Division of Harris County Department of Education, and I'm your host, Mike Wilson. As educational issues continuously evolve, a question that remains is, are the methods we now use to educate our youth keeping pace with the educational revolution? Research has shown that when students actively participate in lessons, they are more engaged and their academic performance increases. During the past decade, there has been significant growth in the number of U.S. schools experimenting with approaches that incorporate students being more interactive in their learning. According to Emily Richmond with the Stanford Center for Opportunity Policy and Education, student-centered learning is an educational method that encourages innovation in the classroom. She adds that new research shows that students thrive when they can see a direct connection between the instructional material on the one hand and their own interest in real world experiences on the other. Educators often use different terms to describe student-centered learning. Concepts fitting under this umbrella include personalized learning, student-teacher partnership, adaptive learning, and collaborative learning. Yet, as students have returned to school post-COVID, many traditional classroom habits have resurfaced. In many cases, the teacher takes the lead in the instruction and students are evaluated based on how they will master the instructions that have been given to them. However, the question remains, what is the best approach to elicit student engagement? Therefore, the topic for this episode of the Making After School Cool podcast is to discuss current issues appearing in education. To discuss a few of these topics is my guest, Miriam Potensky. Miriam is an author and instructional specialist who addresses challenges in both teaching and leading in schools with a variety of needs. She is a strong advocate for student-centered learning and provides coaching and professional development for teachers and administrators. She is widely published in such educational publications as Education Week, Edutopia, ASCD Express, The Teaching Channel, EdSearch, K-12 Talk, and Education World. She is also a national board certified teacher and has additional certifications in administration and supervision. Her first book, Teach More, Hover Less, How to Stop Micromanaging in Secondary Classrooms is a practical guide to student-centered instructional approach that removes the necessity of teachers' micromanagement. I must say I've enjoyed reading some of your material regarding issues in education, so I'm extremely excited to have you as a guest on our podcast. How are things going today with you? I'm doing just fine, and thank you for saying that. That's a great way to come in. (laughs) Well, first I want to start off is what created your interest in education and educational-related issues? Well, to be honest, I was not the most successful student until I got to college. And I think I had so many negative experiences as a student that at first I probably wanted to stay as far away from school as possible. But then I realized it could be a different experience for me to be on on another side of things. So that was my first inspiration was to see kids who didn't feel like teachers saw them, who might not be the you know, the more most vocal, overachieving kids in the classroom. I wanted to really try to relate to everybody who I worked with as much as possible. And then over time, I didn't expect teaching to be as much fun as it was, as fulfilling as it was. It kind of got me. I, I, you know, when I first started teaching, I thought, okay, I'll give this a few years. 
I got a graduate degree in education policy. I thought I'd go to the policy side of things because I live in the Washington DC area. But then it, I just really wanted to be in the classroom. So I stayed classroom based for almost 20 years before transitioning to um, my role as an instructional specialist. So I still work with schools, but a lot of that time I wanted to have a very firm foundation in teaching because that's, that's really where the money is in terms of just satisfaction and happiness and being with kids. Kids are so great to work with. I recently read your article in Education Week entitled, Banning Books Won't Make Students Safer, which brings me to my next question, which has two parts. Since your area of expertise is in education and secondary English language arts and literacy, can you explain the process educators use when they select books for their curriculum? And secondly, in your opinion, regarding how much should outside influencers like parents and people in the community alter what is being taught in the schools? So for the, for the first question, it's really a much more complex process than people would believe. There's this misconception that exists that because you have been a student in a school, because you've seen the inside of a school for many years of your life, that you really understand how one works. So people grow up and they think they get how instructional decisions are made. And when it comes to books, when we look at a book for approval for curriculum, which is a very big deal because we're essentially okaying a book for broad range use across a certain grade level or maybe even multiple grade levels. What we're looking at are a number of different factors. First of all, from a more quantitative perspective, we're looking at lexile levels. So is this book complex enough for the reading level that we're presenting it to? And then there are qualitative measures. So what sorts of complex ideas does a book share with kids? Are they of an age where they can access those ideas? And this is where things get a little tricky because people start looking at content. What's the book about? But we're looking at other things. We're looking at skills and standards. So suppose students need to meet specific reading standards at their grade level. Does the book support that need? So we're actually looking for example, if we're saying that students need to learn how to determine the meaning of vocabulary words in context. So it's not a word they know, but it's a word they can figure out from the words around it in the sentence. Is this a book that's going to help them accomplish that for a variety of reasons? So we're really looking at some very technical pieces that lay people outside of education are not aware of and don't think much about. And then, of course, it's not just one person's decision. When I work on book approvals, I'm working with a variety of experts with lots of different vantage points to determine whether or not a book is worth using. And it's not about whether we like it or not. It's almost never about whether we like it or not. We do wanna think about whether kids will like it, but that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is whether it can help kids achieve that skill that we're looking for at that grade level, whether it's accessible, but also whether it's challenging. So there's that piece of it. So then to address the second part of your question, what role do outside influencers have on what kids read? On a broad level, they really don't. Uh, they don't have that same knowledge base that people in education have, especially people who are experts in a content area or with a specific age group or grade level. Now, if I'm a parent and I don't want my child to read a book, that is completely legitimate. Suppose my child has experienced trauma, or suppose I just don't believe in what the book teaches or whatever, whatever is going on. I have had parents come to me in the past and say, my child will not be reading this book. And that's their decision. They're the parent, it's their kid. It's my job as the teacher to try to figure out, first of all, what book the child can read that tests the same skills and standards so they're not gonna miss out on achieving something very important academically. 
But then it's also my job to do it in a way that other kids don't necessarily notice, so that it's subtle, so that no one feels like they are being isolated or shamed, and that's harder to do. So, you know, we have these conversations about, about books and whether they should be taught. The one I wrote about, I was very moved to write that article in Education Week because uh, it was a graphic novel called Mouse, M-A-U-S, about the Holocaust by Art Spiegelman. And there were a lot of things that were cited in there. I read the transcript of the, of the Tennessee Board of Education and why they decided not to use that book. And for example, they said, you know, issues of graphic, of a graphic nature. Mouse is uh, something where there are no actual drawings of humans in there, they're animals. <laughs> so in the book, you know, for example, uh, the Nazis are portrayed as cats and the Jewish people are portrayed as mice. And so you start thinking, okay, well, is it the graphic nature of the book that's really getting you or is there something else going on? But there were a whole lot of objections that were raised toward that book that didn't necessarily, first of all, legitimately apply. But then beyond that, it was also, they were delegitimizing the book as a graphic novel. That's another thing that I don't think is, is a really great argument. Graphic novels are complex and there are wonderful gateways to literacy for kids who might not have as much of a visual cue when they're reading, they can't see the reading. It really helps them get there and build that skill. So. I also think that graphic novels serve a purpose that people don't necessarily see. You know, I'm, and I'm really impressed with the way you articulate some of your articles or some of your opinions regarding some of these issues, because our department works a lot with either school-based or community-based after-school programs. And we try to do some, I guess, what you would consider non-traditional methods of teaching kids and, you know, having them find out what it is that they're interested in using youth voice and sometimes the things that are coming up now um, during this age of i guess social injustice and everybody has an opinion on everything um, our programs get stuck in the middle and so you know some of the terms and some of the things that you are saying actually empower a lot of our um, staff and people who are working in an out-of-school time feel so that if kids want to read certain things or if they are more attracted to or question what's currently going on at least there's some vocabulary and some resources out there that definitely uh, can help them i'm going to take a little um, step back and go back to some things you wrote regarding remote teaching You've previously published an article in Utopia regarding helping teachers adapt to digital instruction during the pandemic. What would you say are some lessons educators learn during remote teaching that could help them today? I think the primary lesson that all of us learned that we can continue to think about a lot is, is flexibility. <laughs> you know, we get into, in life and in, in work, we get into ruts, we get into patterns. We do things the same way. And I understand, especially in teaching, the temptation to not change that much because you have a lot going on. Teachers are very busy people who on average make 1500 decisions a day, which is the second highest only to uh, air traffic controllers. So we make a lot of decisions. I think that's like four decisions a minute. So when you have so much going on in your professional life, it really makes sense if you taught a lesson before why not teach it again, especially if it worked? But I think what remote instruction taught us was that there were just a lot of areas that we didn't have any knowledge about. So it wasn't just going on Zoom, but how do you teach on Zoom in a way 
that is still responsive to kids. How do you define what it means to be engaged? Does it mean that a kid has a camera on and that they're unmuted and that you can see them? Or is there another way that they're showing you that they can learn something? So we started being a lot more thoughtful about what it meant to connect to kids. And we also learned more, I think, in that year than we probably learned on using the collective we as teachers. I just finished teaching a class on Zoom last semester just a couple of weeks ago. So I'm still in the space of how do I make this better? What can I do besides put you into a breakout room that's going to help you have a discussion? How do I have a whole group discussion? How do I see what you're working on? What sorts of shared tools can we use? So people started using things like Nearpod or Pear Deck or you know, the different online quizzes and they, they became more knowledgeable that way. But there were also more good conversations about teaching and learning than there had been in quite a while. And I think it's important that we have those resets. I wish a pandemic were not the impetus for resetting us. And to be honest, I wish there had been more change because right now, I don't know. Everyone said at the beginning of COVID, oh, this is going to be the thing that, you know, stops status quo in its tracks. And we're going we're gonna to have, like, there's an article that I read, I think it was from ASTD, why COVID-19 is our equity check. And I was so hopeful when I read that article. We're going to really start changing our system so that more kids have voices and so we include everybody so that students of color are not as ignored or disadvantaged in classrooms as they have been in the past. To be honest, I'm not really seeing those changes as much as I was hoping to. And I think a lot of people feel the same way about, about remote instruction, but it did, it did get us thinking a little bit more fluidly and flexibly about how we teach. And that's, that's, that's something good. And, you know, in addition to all that, it opened up possibilities we haven't had before. I don't know how many school districts took advantage of snow days this past year to continue instruction. But we have options we didn't have before, and at least we're a little bit more familiar with how to use them. Yeah, that's true. I think that um, we're slowly getting back to our old comfort zones, but I think we've also become a little bit more flexible of the unpredicted happens. How do we continue? And we just don't shut everything down. So I think that's that's one of the benefits. For me, doing a podcast, um, the fact that I had to do so much on Zoom and so remotely, it expanded my audience. It expanded the number of people I could talk to. Like you're in DC, I'm in Houston, and we can still have these conversations. So uh, that's, a, that's a plus on my, my side. You've also written about the benefits of school administrators who also instruct students in the classroom. I personally think this is a great practice because in many cases, uh, the faculty, by the time they reach uh, administration, they've been away from the classroom for, for quite some time. So if they still stay connected with students and teach classes, then it does two things. One, they still can kind of view things from the instructor's per, uh, perspective, from the teacher's perspective. And secondly, as they start making um, decisions, they kind of have a feel or a sense on how kids are re responding to instruction and they know a little bit of um, what actually they have to do. What would you say are some insights school administrators gain when they also teach in a class? Well, one big thing is that it, it closes what I call the empathy gap between teachers and administrators. I, I have a book coming out in 2023 called Lead Like a Teacher. And it's all about how we can lead schools more from a teacher's perspective. Because there is this thing that happens where teachers are in their classrooms and administrators are not necessarily in those instructional spaces as much as they would like to be. Because 
from a practical perspective, they're always triaging. You know, it, there's always a fire somewhere. So what happens is that the separation occurs and, and the longer you have been out of a classroom, the less likely it is that you really understand what's happening instructionally anymore. And with everything accelerating with technology and with students changing uh, their own perspectives, students are not the same now as they were even two years ago. You really don't have that ability to be empathetic if you haven't taught more recently. And I know that a lot of people feel very strongly about what I just said. For example, uh, in my state, which is Maryland, I'm, I'm on the border of DC, there is a, um, a new regulation that administrators should be teaching 20% of their workday by the year 2024. And yes, this, is, this has been met with a lot of strong feelings, as you might imagine. But I talked to administrators who have been teachers in the classroom. For example, in, uh, I wrote an article in Edutopia about it, and I interviewed a high school principal. And he taught one class a day. And what he said was that he learned that, and this was in 2019, that teaching in 2019 was not the same as it had been when he'd exited many years ago. And so he was able to really understand what his teachers were going through in a way that he wouldn't have been able to if he hadn't done that. And I know that leaders get up in front of teachers and say, I taught for this many years. But honestly, when you're out, you're out. People don't look at it the same way. You're not in those trenches anymore. And you don't have the same level of credibility that you used to have, right or wrong, if you're not doing it from time to time, if you're not teaching from time to time. Um, and also, when you go into a classroom, that gives you an opportunity as a leader to perhaps give a teacher another experience. Suppose I go in and I co-teach, then we can work together and form a partnership. But suppose I say to that teacher, I'm going to teach your class for an hour. You go and either hang out in my office. I have some stuff that you can do and you can partner them with another administrator or have them shadow somebody and learn a little bit more about that side of the job. Or you can say, I'm giving you this time to look at somebody else's instruction. Go meet with a buddy, watch them teach, get ideas. And obviously you're not doing this on the fly. You would prepare them, you would prepare yourself. You don't just go into people's classrooms, kick them out and start teaching. But the idea is that if you're willing to go in there as, as a leader and teach, not only are you gaining credibility as an instructional leader, which is a huge part of the job, but you're also giving teachers the chance to share what they do more, to create more collaboration, to open things up in ways they haven't been open before. So that's a sort of a short version of why it's so great, but it really, it really can, can be done effectively if you plan for it. Having said that, you probably have to take some things off administrators' plates to make it possible. Because right now, for example, if I tell an assistant principal, you have to teach 20% of your day, they're gonna say, well, then who's taking care of the 20% stuff that I had to do during that time? That's a legitimate question. You've encouraged teachers to ask the question to their students, what do you think during their instruction? What are some advantages for teachers as well as the student when this simple term is used to discuss lessons? What do you think is a very sort of, it, it, it's, it's deceptive. It seems like a simple question, but really what you're saying to a child when you ask that question is, I care about what you think. Your thoughts are legitimate, your thoughts are valid. So many, so many kids do not feel a sense of safety from an academic perspective. Even if they like a teacher personally, 
they might not feel comfortable making contributions to a class because somehow the message has been sent either verbally or non-verbally that they are not really that valuable in terms of what they say. You know, if, if, a, if a kid is called on in class and a teacher moves on or doesn't validate the response somehow, that can really be, be hurtful. So when we ask a kid, what do you think? People don't ask kids that enough. We're very busy sharing our thoughts. And one thing I've always really disliked in terms of just an educational philosophy is the belief that we're there to fill children like they're vessels. So I'm gonna take all my brilliant thoughts and I'm gonna put them into you and then you're gonna think them and then everything's gonna be fine. That's not education. I'm not sure what that is. That's sort of some sort of strange transference, right? But if I say, what do you think? And then I listen to what you say. See, that's the other piece. We can't just ask it. We have to listen to the answer and use it and say, wow, that is an interesting thought because that relates to what we're doing because I like how you did that because. So we get very specific with why those thoughts are, are valid or why they move learning forward. Kids will trust us more when they share ideas. And it's, it's a powerful thing to talk less as teachers and to listen more to what kids are thinking. And it's really interesting because sometimes when I talk about getting kids' thoughts more, people say, oh, that's lazy teaching. We have to fill, you know, we have, we have to tell them, we have to do more. It, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with understanding that your voice is not the only important one in the room. Yeah, we're, we're doing a big effort on trying to elicit youth voice and sometimes it can be a little difficult because kids don't really know what they don't know. And so often you hear a lot of the same types of, this is what I need, this is what I want. But I think when you expand and you and, and the students are aware that you're gonna be asking these questions with sincerity, then they'll start looking up some things. And so the conversation becomes a little bit broader than just adult driven practices. Um, you have a book out entitled Teach More, Hover Less, How to Stop Micromanaging Your Secondary Classroom. Can you provide us a brief description of the book and benefits educators can gain from the book? Absolutely. So this, this is a book that I wrote uh, during the first couple of years of the pandemic. I hate saying that in the first couple of years of the pandemic because it's like it's never going to end. But um, I wrote it because, you know, teachers were really that I talked to, that I worked with, but also just people I had casual conversations with, were really struggling to get back to a student-centered model of instruction. If you think about it, we're on Zoom. It's hard to be student-centered on Zoom. You're teaching in classrooms with masks and social distancing. It's hard for kids to take over learning in those conditions. So I wrote the book as a four-step guide to giving kids more of that autonomy. And so essentially the book guides readers and you can go through an order or whatever order you like, it guides them through four stages. The first one is reframing our mindset. So what do we believe about how kids learn and how much we need to be involved? What are our thoughts about proximity? What are our thoughts about how indispensable we are when it comes to our physical location? So that was inspired by a lot of remote learning questions that came up. The second stage is about reframing relationships so that when we're building relationships with kids, it's not just about you know, liking them again as people or knowing sort of incidental personal facts about them. It's about making them feel as though they are valuable members of the classroom community, as thinkers, as scholars, as learners. The third stage is planning for engagement, which is when we want to engage kids, we have to include them in the planning. So there are a lot of tools for how do we, how do we plan lessons with kids in mind, it's what you were just talking about. It's not enough to say, what do you think? It's also, I'm gonna show you how I changed my class today based on what you told me you wanted or why I didn't change my class. 
but at least you're you're acknowledging their thoughts and, and validating them as you go. And the fourth the fourth part of it is choice based instruction, which is essentially when and wherever possible, you're providing them with certain choices so they can make decisions about their day. Again, you're the teacher, you're driving a lot of the bus, but you're also letting them make certain decisions as they go. And the book is very heavily focused on practical strategies. So all throughout, there are different tools, there are different models, there are different examples throughout various content areas that show readers how to do this. So they can try it in their classroom. Every single tool in the book has been experimented with on real children and has worked well. So it's a very practical, applicable, immediate kind of a focus. Because I always get frustrated when I read education books and they stay very, you know, theoretical, cerebral. We don't really know what to do with it. So that's that's the opposite of what I, I do with my writing. I want it to be very hands-on and very actionable. So that's that's a the quick version of what of what the book does. And then in terms of who it can serve, really useful for people who are coming newly to the profession who came in during the pandemic, or just people who need a refresh on, you know, they feel like they are coming home at the end of the day incredibly exhausted because they're doing too much. This is a good book for them to read. If people would like to contact you for more information regarding the book or all the, you know, ADOPS and articles that you've written or some of the things we've discussed today, um, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? So I have a website. It's my first and last name. So it's miriamplotinsky.com. And I also am very accessible on Twitter at Mirplo. It's M-I-R-P-L-O-M-C-P-S. So those are both really good ways to find me. And there's a contact form on my website they can fill out. And I, I get that pretty quickly. Great, great. Uh, any final comments before we close? Just that it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I'm, I'm really glad that some of this this work is resonating because you know we can't we can't stand still what the beauty of teaching it's also the difficult part is that we can invent ourselves over and over and over again and it's exhausting sometimes but in the summer right now this is the time to think about what do we want to do differently so it's great to have these conversations so that we can challenge challenge ourselves to, to just figure out where we want to go next so thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that well, I appreciate you taking some time. I know you're busy. I didn't realize you were working all year, but I have to say, I, I really appreciate some of the things that you've published. I think you're a great resource and I highly advise anybody who are who is in education or even working with kids or even if you're a parent uh, to check out some of the things you've done because I think it would make that educational journey a lot easier on both sides. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm always happy when people reach out. So it goes both ways. Well, I will say I probably will be in contact with you some more because it seems like educational issues are, are constantly evolving and changing. And uh, yeah. like I said before, you're you're definitely a great resource. Well, and that's one thing I say, I can't ever stop writing because I never stop being angry long enough <laughs> to stop writing. <laughs> As always, I want to thank our listeners for joining us today where our topic focused on current issues appearing in education. Please join us for future episodes as we continue to explore issues relevant to out-of-school time field.